thank you very much for um, coming along this evening to, um, uh, to the London School of Economics and Political Science, for whom we have to thank for hosting um, this uh, debate. The debate is the last in a series of four that we have done, and they are called, this series, Glass Half Full, in which our presenter, Fee Glover, um, invites optimists and pessimists to debate um, important issues of the day. This program will be broadcast on Radio 4 on Wednesday the 26th of April at 8 p.m. in the evening and then again on Saturday the 29th at 10.15 uh, p.m. And after the 26th, a podcast of everything we record this evening will um, hopefully be available on the LSE website. Um, if you want to, you can tweet um, uh, about the show after it, it's finished. You may feel you know, um, inclined once you've heard the arguments about digital technology to, uh, to go tweeting. Our hashtag is r4glassfull. I think that's on the little leaflet that you've got. So we will record... 50 minutes or so, after which there will be time for your um, questions to um, our speakers here. Please turn off your phones, and please, there's a bit of audience particip participation. So when Fee asks you a particular question, please do participate. Shout up and shout out, and enjoy the show. Thank you. So, kids, just to reiterate, we're not recording yet. I know when people say audience participation, many of you, you clench your buttocks with fear. It's not going to be anything particularly testing. But if you imagine um, that we are broadcasting to millions of people at home, you have to be their eyes and ears on what we're doing here. So it helps us enormously in creating this program if you can really get involved in what's basically a bit of a thought experiment as we go through the next 50 minutes. So when I ask you to shout, as Susan said, if you could make that loud and full, uh, just to let you know, um, the other audiences that we've had have been exceptionally good at this thing, okay? <laughs> So no pressure at all. I can see that many of you have a competitive spirit. You just look like that type of kind of crowd. So we would obviously like you to be the very best crowd yet. So is that okay with you? Yes, good, good. Oh, thank you. Somebody got it immediately. Do you know what I'd like to do as well? Just so you're not sitting here for the next 20 minutes or so thinking, who's that person they haven't spoken yet? We'll just go once down the panel and uh, we will just hear... Uh, who you are and very briefly what your area of expertise is and then we'll absolutely crack on with the programme. So can we start with you please, Martha? I'm Martha Lane Fox and I have worked in the internet since the dawn of time. <laughs> uh, I'm Andrew Keane, the same. Uh, I'm Sugata Mitra, I work with children and the internet. I'm Sue Palmer, I work with children and not the internet. <laughs> particularly, except you can't avoid it really, can you now? <laughs> uh, my name's Gina Hardy and I'm a presenter. I work predominantly in video gamings and, uh, video games, gamings and tech. Lovely. Round of applause, please, for our participants tonight. <laughs> right, so I'm also going to do that funny thing sometimes where I say a sentence, I cock it up and then I just say it again and you're not allowed to laugh at that, okay? That's just a hazard of the job. Everyone got that straight? 
Yes. Uh, does everyone have their mobile phone switched off and their laptops and stuff? Because we are recording, things just start humming. Uh, so we would be very grateful if you make sure that everything's off. Because otherwise, we might have to go from the top and then people start to get annoyed about their dinner reservations not being made. Right. Are we good to go? Everyone on the panel good to go? Let's do it. Hello and welcome to the LSE for this confrontation on the issue of tech. Are you the kind of person who puts the app in happiness? There are no more of those, don't worry. Or the kind of person who regards the relentless advance of technology as an infringement on a world which was really quite all right with or without Wi-Fi. Tonight our proposition is very specific. Technology is making children's lives richer. It all starts very young... It all starts very young these days. Before there are even two, most babies and toddlers in this country are playing with tablets and smartphones, and the average school child now spends more time communicating via screens than with people directly face-to-face. We also find ourselves at an interesting point in the timeline of tech because our children are digital natives, but most parents are not. So we can't compare and contrast our childhoods with theirs. Hence, we worry about children being bullied online, about them coming into contact with unsuitable material and people, and we just worry about them becoming boss-eyed and extremely boring. Of course, the Internet is also a wonderful place for curiosity. If you want to watch live streaming of the Earth from space, you've got it. If you want a decent job in life, if you want a decent job later in life, you've got to get tech savvy. What was so great about riding your bike up and down the pavement in the rain anyway? And so this program is something of a thought experiment. And what we would really like you to do is to have a quick think about whether or not your glass is half full or half empty and how that viewpoint affects your ability to understand the facts. So we're going to do this with the audience here at the LSE now. Before we start, who thinks that digital technology is making our children's lives richer? If you think that, can you shout full now? Full! And who thinks not? So who thinks our children's lives are not enhanced by digital technology? You can shout empty. Oh my goodness, I think that is almost a dead heat. So we're going to hang on to those decibel levels because we're going to ask exactly the same question at the end of the programme and we're going to try and sway your opinions. Time to introduce our optimist tonight, Martha Lane Fox. While she was still in her 20s back in the late 90s, Martha recognised the massive potential of the internet and co-founded LastMinute.com, which was sold for a very pretty penny. Having a... Having advised the government on the power of the internet and being connected, she is now fighting for a fairer internet with her charity, Dot Everyone. So, Martha, you've had a career founded on the internet, but presumably, without giving your age away totally, uh, you grew up in those very old-fashioned days when children played outside, and surely that is a good thing. That is what shaped you. No, playing outside did not shape me, and I don't believe it's an either-or. You know, I think often back to my... Childhood where I would come home from school where I said goodbye to my best friend Charlotte at the school gates. I'd go inside, I'd watch Grange Hill like this on my sofa and then I'd call Charlotte on the telephone and talk to her for another two hours having just spent all day at school with her. 
And that was pretty much how my evenings played out. So I would argue that the Internet's richness, your capacity not just to talk to Charlotte, but a bunch of your friends all at the same time, and learn and explore the world at the same time is phenomenal. What did Charlotte end up doing? Charlotte's a writer <laughs> okay. of books. Does she write longhand on paper? I think she might. <laughs> right, well, arguing against Martha's optimism is our pessimist, Andrew Keane, who, like Martha, began as an internet entrepreneur. In fact, he still lives in Silicon Valley and has flown over from California to be here tonight. He's now one of the most foremost critics of the internet in talks promoted, ironically, on digital platforms like TED and in books like Digital Vertigo and The Internet is Not the Answer. Andrew, is there even room to be a digital pessimist anymore? What do you mean? Is, aren't we so saturated by a digital world that you just have to accept that you play some part in it and you have to engage with it? Well, that's like saying um, if you're critical of uh, some of the environmental consequences of the Industrial Revolution, we're sitting here with electricity and we come, we come backwards and forwards to places like this by car or by train, that there's no room for it when it comes to technology. So the fact that digital technology is so ubiquitous, that it's so bound up in everything we do and how we work, how we play, um, makes it even more essential. So uh, I think uh, the, fact that, um, the fact that we live in a digital world, just as 100 years ago people lived in an industrial world, means that if you're not thinking critically about the things we're going to discuss tonight, then you're not thinking critically at all. But is it hypocritical in any sense to not immediately acknowledge the good things that come our way through that kind of digital saturation? I mean, do you go home of an evening and make things out of wood, or are you actually Googling your book sales and ordering pizza online? I think that's the wrong way of looking at it. I think that trivialises this conversation. It's like, again, if we were talking in the 19th century about um, the consequences of industrialization, you were thinking, well, is this a good or a bad thing? And if anyone was slightly critical, you'd say, well, do you still live in a cave? Do you still use candlelight? I mean, the reality is, is that we live in a digital world. That doesn't mean you can't be critical of it. Just as uh, you can like digital and still embrace analog. But I think this either-or approach of saying, well, if you're critical, you need to smash your iPhone. If you're critical, you need to only read books is absurd. Doesn't it really come into the argument about children, though? I mean, for many parents, uh, it is an either-or. They do want their children to live in a world, to experience a world that doesn't have a digital connection before they go into a world that does. No, it's the wrong way of thinking of it. What do you mean, either-or? You mean either children can only use their iPads or their iPhones, or they're banned from using them. Both of those are absurd. I mean, the reality is is that everyone exists somewhere between those extremes. The reality is is that you might limit how much your children use the Internet, but living without the Internet is is today as absurd as as living without electricity. And if you want to be that sort of extreme Luddite type, you can, but you're irrelevant in this world. It's impossible to give these things up. You can't work. You can't have an identity in today's world without the Internet. 
Well, alongside our two main protagonists here, we've also got three witnesses who are each going to bring something to the table on the subject, and we'll get a chance to question them later. But because this programme is called Glass Half Full, we're going to give our opening pitch to our optimists. So, Martha, you're here to argue about the enriching power of the internet on children's lives. And in fact, you're very concerned, aren't you, about how many children in Britain are still not connected? Yes, there are a number in Britain, but more uh, importantly, globally, the number is profoundly uh, big. But actually, I'd like to start way back in time. I'm a classical historian, a very, very um, direct link towards becoming a tech entrepreneur, I think you will agree. And I often look back for inspiration about how to treat the future or even think about the present. And I particularly was struck by something that Socrates wrote about writing. And I quote directly, this is of people who will learn to write. They will appear to be omniscient, will generally know nothing. They will be tiresome company, having the show of wisdom without reality. A few hundreds of years later, Cicero was writing about books. And he, again, I quote directly, said, times are bad. Children no longer obey their parents, and everyone is writing a book. Now, I start with that place because it seems to me that we are in a moment of shakeout, and another, as Andrew has said, kind of seismic shift has happened in our capacity to communicate, share information, e-commerce. Every single axis of our world is being turned around if you are on the Internet. And of course, that's going to have a profound effect on children. But I believe we should embrace this with optimism and hope, not fear, because the gains are huge and rich. And I'll give you some specific examples. There have been a lot of studies recently looking at screens, which I find a bit of a kind of misplaced term anyway, because a screen isn't inherently anything. It's what you're doing on it that's important. And as I'm sure Julia will be able to tell us later, video games, and they now have proven, Columbia University showed this study that came out at the end of last year that you're two times more intellectually quick if you play video games, which I'm sure is why Julia will talk so fast later, and that you're 1.75 times more um, attuned to your um, hand and eye coordination. So we know that there are things that you can do using the internet-enabled technologies, digital technologies, that literally make your brain richer. And then, of course, there's the incredible capacity to connect with people all over the world and see things that you could never have explored. You know, I, again, completely reject this notion that somehow children are more isolated because they're online all the time. I think that children are isolated for many reasons, partly because we've taken all their green spaces away. But how incredible to be able to go on Google Earth and look around the world without ever leaving your bedroom. And how incredible to be able to have multiple chats, theoretically, with children from all over the world, should you fancy it. But do you realistically think that that's what you would have been doing in your own childhood? I mean, isn't it much more likely that you're going to get stuck on a Zoella vlog, or you're going to look at cats doing hilarious things, but or I, great sporting bloopers But I'm not sure time. that you always have to be building your brain power relentlessly, you know? I think looking at some cats is absolutely fine. I loved watching Zamo on Grange Hill having his terrible heroin problem. It was, it's all, it's just part of the bank of things that you build up as a child, and I would be anxious if your child was always looking at cat videos, but, you know, the, the antidote to that is that there is an incredible ability to watch how animals have now been, um, uh, perceived in the world in a way that we never had before the internet, or to see uh, incredible things about how cats behave when humans aren't there. So I would argue that for every negative thing you can do online, you can find 500 more positive things, and it's about education and usage. Um, 
Do you agree that the democratisation of the internet hasn't really come true? You believed, and I know you've spoken about this many times before, in that power of the internet to actually give a child from a poor background exactly the same access to information as a child from a rich background. But that really hasn't happened, has it? No, I look back now to 97, 98, when I believe that there was this amazing redistributive, democratising force that was about to be unleashed on the world, and I feel incredibly naive now in 2017 when the internet is controlled by a very small group of companies that come from a very small area of the world it would be hard to argue that it really had had that profound effect that we thought it would. But I still think that the power of what you can, if you just push and are curious, find is extraordinary and that we should be doubling down and encouraging those positive experiences rather than leaping off with fear and feeling pessimistic. But ultimately then, doesn't the ability for technology to enrich children's lives depend on the kind of family that the child is living in? We're not really talking about the tech or the content, we're still just talking about parenting. You know, your background, when you were growing up, you probably had books, probably Encyclopedia Britannica, you went on trips, yours was a stimulating world. But if that's not the case for a child, then shouldn't we be right to worry about how they might lose themselves without the proper guidance? Possibly, but I would also argue that it's not just parents and it's not just school environment. Again, there is the capacity for self-learning and curiosity using the internet. You know, imagine the other scenario where you are a child that's desperate for sucker and knowledge. And I can think of three or four kids in my school who were, you know, furiously bored and weren't getting that at home. And they now would have been able to be looking at things in a way that they had never imagined possible. So, of course, you're right, context is part of it. But I also think that if you just look at the data about how we now know that children learn most effectively, children with learning problems learn more easily on iPads, can learn to read more effectively using digital technology. Children with disability who would never have had an opportunity previously. Children from backgrounds where maybe there weren't those stimulations at home. So I think that there is capacity on the internet for learning and self-improvement that was far beyond what we could have imagined. So the premise of this whole programme is to try and work out how our initial reaction to a subject shapes all our subsequent reactions to the information that comes our way. So would you describe yourself as an optimistic person you know, in, in other forms of life and what's shaped that optimism? What's put you in that corner that might mean that you can look at the world through a very cheery kind of prism? I don't know. It's hard to answer that about yourself, but I was laughing when I was thinking about it because I was thinking, well, I got really lucky with my business, lastminute.com. How lucky that we were one of the few companies that survived. And then I was thinking, and then I had this terrible car crash and I survived that. Aren't I lucky? So maybe I'm just someone that thinks about the world from a positive bent. And I'm sure that's a whole bunch of complicated things, but probably just lucky. More from you in a few minutes, Martha, but we're now going to hear from our pessimist. Andrew, you claim that digital technology is as bad for children as fast food. So uh, take it away. Big Mac and fries, please. Right. Um, so I think to, it, it, it's, this is a tricky subject, and we, we saw the audience was half and half. I think the key thing is to figure out what richer means. Uh, the, the, the question here is... is is the internet or is digital technology generally uh, making children's lives richer, in, enriching their lives? So we need to think to, to ourselves, what does that mean, enriching a child's life? We're not talking then about, does it make their life more fun? Does it make their life more convenient? Those are self-evident. 
it's certainly fun. Who, 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 nobody doesn't find the internet fun. I mean, it's unimaginable to think that uh, you wouldn't enjoy the internet. It's like going to a fun fair. There's everything there. It's certainly remarkably convenient. I mean, for anybody who's ever used Google, anyone who's been on YouTube, um, you can find anything quickly. You don't need to, to use libraries anymore. Um, so when it comes to fun and, uh, and convenience, there's no doubt that the Internet is good for children. But is that making... What you need to think to yourselves is, is that making a child's life richer? Now, Martha threw out, very impressively, certainly for, for uh, someone arguing in favor of technology, she, she, she threw out Socrates at first. And she argued that Socrates had been one of the earliest people to warn us about the dangers of, uh, of reading, uh, were writing, and, and, and Socrates was defending the, the real-time experience, what we're doing now. Socrates was doing it, I think, from the point of view of making one's life richer in terms of citizenship. What we need to think about in terms of this conversation is, is the Internet preparing children to be adults? Because the whole notion of childhood that seems to have sort of evolved, it certainly didn't exist in, in Socrates' time, the whole notion of childhood is bound up in development. So you're a child so that you have this sort of narrative, and then you become an adult. And as a child, you learn things to become an adult. That's what, me, that, that's what being young means. So the question we need to think to ourselves is, is the Internet preparing children well to become adults? Is the Internet preparing children to become citizens? Is the Internet, perhaps most importantly, is it enabling them to master themselves. That's where the fast food thing comes in. Sure, we could, we could have a debate about fast food and say, well, is, is fast food making child kids' lives richer? Certainly making it more fun, more convenient. Who wouldn't enjoy a fast food meal? But it's not enabling them to master themselves. It's not enabling them to control themselves. And I think the same is true of the Internet. Let me just give you a couple of examples of why I think I worry, and again, this is not either or, we're not talking about banning the internet, we're not talking about smashing, the, the smashing screens, we're simply thinking to ourselves, is this ubiquitous thing making, making a world in which children will become better, more responsible adults? And I think when it comes to digital, certainly it's ubiquity is resulting in all forms of addiction. You brought up a Columbia University study. I can find studies from all over the world suggesting that the Internet is addictive, especially for young children. It's a harder and harder thing to give up. And that doesn't mean there's some evil Mr. Internet in Mountain View somewhere who's plotting all this. The nature of its technology, though, its real-time technology, is addictive. Scientists are more and more worried about this. Secondly, I think when it comes to knowing about the world, enrichment means understanding the opinions of other people. It means thinking globally. It means confronting opinions, people, worlds that you're not necessarily familiar with. The problem with the Internet, and this doesn't mean that it has to be the problem. There's no necessary inevitability about this. But the problem with today's Internet 
is it's being used increasingly as a kind of echo chamber. So that everyone, especially on social media, you network with people you already agree with. You've seen the rise of fake news. You've seen the rise of demagogues like Trump, who are based on the internet, because of this echo chamber effect. So rather than opening people's minds to new ways of thinking, to, to ways in which, to, to opinions that you don't share, the problem with today's digital culture is this echo chamber where it's simply increasingly confirming what you already think. So the internet, unfortunately, isn't opening people's minds. It's closing people's minds. It's preparing people poorly for citizenship. And we're already seeing the earliest examples of this in the decline and, in some ways, the collapse of political culture in the UK and in the US with Brexit and with the rise But of can Trump. But I, can I drag you back to the kids? Because... I was talking about kids. What do you mean, drag me back? Well, I think probably they can't vote yet and they're not living in a very political world. But I'm interested in your notion that they exist in an echo chamber because Martha pointed out a child's curiosity is an extraordinary thing and in many ways it can be more encyclopedic and more dynamic than the curiosity of an adult. So would you not admit that you know, if you don't have anything else to do with your time but you do have access to the web, actually as a curious 10, 11, 12-year-old, you might think, you know, I want to find out about mountain gorillas. Right. Uh, you know, my son does searches for the most extraordinary things. They're all fine. That's They're what he bonkers. tells you, right? No, I look at his browsing history a lot. Yeah. But his, he searches for the tiny things that have come up during the day that his friends can't answer. And, you know, they're bonkers. They're, they're about, you know, the, uh, how long it would take well, you, you to get to You have a very Jupiter. unusual son. That's no, I, I don't, actually. I have a really average son. I hope you he's do? not listening. No, he... I mean, he's average what, and that he's spending his whole time looking up Mountain gorillas on the internet? No, I'm saying that he has a curiosity that I've lost, actually, as an adult. And I am grateful that he has a place to go where he can find out all of these things. Two things. Firstly, I think you've got to be careful with this sort of idealization of children and saying that they're somehow more, more curious than we are. I, I'm still curious. You're not. <laughs> I mean, this, this notion that somehow children are more curious than we are and therefore we've created this medium for them which sort of... Which, which, which enables them to become curious, I think is, is unrealistic and it's inaccurate. Um, the majority of children are not using the internet to look up mountain gorillas. They're not spending their time on the internet, on Wikipedia, looking up Socrates and wondering whether or not we should what have... What data are you using for what the majority of children well, are Well, what data are you using, Martha? I'm using the data released by both... Uh, the thing, people like the Oxford Internet Institute studies of what people do online, things like the recent YouGov survey that was about and what, what do children they are suggest? doing online. They suggest it's very equally kind of split between some searching, some YouTube, a lot of YouTube yeah. visuals and so on. I mean, social media to a degree, but that's older children. So I think that one of the things that's hard about this is getting to real data that underpins it. Yeah, and I think... And it's quite easy to say... Children are all doing this, but I don't see the evidence for that, and I would love to understand it. Well, true. I think we have evidence in the dominant internet companies, for example, where, which we're both involved in that economy. The dominant internet companies are not knowledge companies. They're companies like Facebook or Instagram. They're social media companies. They're companies where people are using the internet to show themselves off or watch television or, 
or, or other kind of inane stuff on YouTube. There's very little evidence of successful businesses being based, successful internet businesses being based on serious information. I mean, can you give me an example of one? What do you mean by serious information? Well, Sorry. Wikipedia is a non-profit. But the big success stories of, of, of Silicon Valley... But don't we have to wait? Don't we have to wait until this generation of children and the digital natives grow up and create the companies of their own to actually be able to determine how much their childhood was shaped by the internet? Aren't we, we're kind of trying to look at facts that are in the future, aren't we? Well, then we can't have this conversation. No, we can. We're all intelligent people. We can speculate, and I can challenge your views, you can challenge mine. I think the other thing we have to be very careful about is digital natives. This term gets used a lot, and it's been invented by people of our generation, people who think that somehow kids who come to the Internet are going to idealize it more and understand it better. But one of the problems, I think, that the Internet is only going to get reformed in terms of its values and organization by so-called digital natives. You're already seeing the real reaction against digital isn't coming from old people, it's coming from young people. So you're seeing in music, for example, a massive revival in vinyl, the so-called revenge of analog, but it's coming from young people who are sick of this thing. We're already, we're in the 1950s, if you want to use historical analogies. We still haven't come to the 60s yet when it comes to digital. God, and the rebe- but but the rebellion the against digital will come from young people because they're, they're sick of older people telling them how wonderful digital is. We have three expert witnesses who we're now going to bring to the table with their unique views. Just before I introduce them, Andrew, is the one thing... Uh, that, make, that has made you a pessimist? Are you pessimistic about other things in Do the I world? Do I seem pessimistic? Yes. No, just grumpy. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I think I can blame it on uh, LSE, actually. Um, uh, I was a student here years, I won't tell you the exact dates, but I, um, I studied, uh, Martha studied a, uh, ancient Greece. I studied uh, 20th century East Central Europe, and I think... Having had that experience, anyone would become a pessimist. Okay. So is it slightly painful for you to be back here tonight? Very painful, yeah. <laughs> okay. Right, I'll bear that in mind then. Uh, so let me introduce to you our expert witnesses. I feel bad now. Sue Palmer, a former primary head teacher whose book is called Toxic Childhood, How Modern Life is Damaging Our Children. Julia Hardy, who presents TV and radio shows about gaming. And Professor Sagata Mitra, Professor of Educational Technology at Newcastle University. Uh, Sagata Mitra, we're going to start with you, if that's all right. Uh, your research in India with children and computers has become so famous, it's achieved a mythical dimension. It inspired the film Slumdog Millionaire. And Sagata also won the million-dollar TED Prize to set up a school in the clouds to enable kids to learn. And, of course, uh, you're famous for installing computers in the slums of Delhi, literally creating holes in the wall. What did you discover with that experiment? Tell us a little bit more about that. Well, that was firstly a very long time ago and uh, at that time uh, people used to think that computers need to be taught. People need to be taught how to use computers. So when I put in the first of these uh, into a wall, I found that uh, the children didn't need to be taught. The adults did. The adults would point at a mouse and say, what is that? But the children never did that. So secondly, I found that... Uh, they can do a lot of things or learn to do a lot of things with computers very quickly. You could either look at it as, well, you know, idle pointing and clicking, 
or you could look at it as something bigger. It's only later that I realized that it was something bigger. Uh, the fact that they could find a website and download a game and then install it without knowing English was a bit surprising at that time. <laughs> so, uh, so I had to repeat the experiment many times to check that uh, it indeed uh, is happening that way. And it was, and it's all, you know, we got the data, we published uh, all of that. Then I brought this whole thing over to England, and, uh, you know, I, I thought, well, what sense does it make out here? I mean, there's so many computers, so much money and everything. So um, I found something really interesting about children. Uh, if you take a group of children here in this country, if you take away all their computers and give them one, and then ask them a good question, a nice, interesting, Socratic question. Their first reaction is, where are all the, where are all the other computers? And I'd say, well, I don't know. And then what you get is a social phenomenon. They do the opposite of what we think the, uh, the Internet does to them. They're not isolated. They're intensely together. <laughs> they're trying to figure out who should find out what, and they're arguing about websites, and they're doing all of that. That became a method out here called a self-organized learning environment. And then, uh, to my surprise, it started traveling out of the Northeast into the rest of the country, into Europe, into Australia, and into all the five continents. Tens of thousands of teachers started blogging about the fact that if you give them the right question, they seem to do a semester's worth of work in an hour. And you can test them for it. So that I hadn't expected. I hadn't expected that you know, a couple of slum kids in Delhi was trying to show us the future of learning. So you would agree that a child's curiosity can take them to a place that they wouldn't be able to get to without tech? Yes, but we need to spark that. You know, it's we who produce those big questions. If you, do, if you ask them a stupid question, all this won't happen. But once you do that, then the children start to change. And my, my favorite example is a Northeast mom who wrote a blog saying, something has changed in my house. My son, instead of playing computer games for 100% of the time, now plays computer games for 98% of the time. <laughs> But for the balance 2%, he looks for some weird stuff, <laughs> like, like fractals and differential equations and gravitational waves. What exactly are they doing in school? So I don't think I quite understand that change myself. I don't think any of us actually can understand what the meaning of that change is. So this mountain gorilla thing, it's, it's not coming only out of your son's head. It's coming out of somewhere else. Okay? And we have to find that and encourage that. And if we do that, and as Andrew said, it's not a question of should they do it or shouldn't they do it. If they're doing wood carving, I would tell them, use your mobile phone to do it. What does that mean? That means looking up techniques or whatever. I've tried that over and over and over again. You can integrate the internet into whatever it is that they're doing. Sometimes they get bored, like Andrew said, and sometimes they say, no, we don't want to use the internet. So well, what would you say to Andrew's notion that we are creating addiction, though, 
through technology and something that children at a very young age really don't have the skills to be able to cope with? I don't know how to think about that very well. Uh, but uh, what comes to my mind is, are we not, for example, addicted to shoes? And can, to shoes and can no longer walk barefoot anymore. So should we feel really sorry about that? That is a philosophical question that I'm going to have to stack up for later and get back to you. Uh, Martha, would you like to, to challenge uh, on anything yet? I respect enormously what Sugatra Mitra has achieved and it's something that I think is extraordinarily inspirational and uplifting. I guess I'm interested in how you set the questions because it does seem to me that a lot of this is about the frameworks that we put around children and that's where we might end up all violently agreeing. So how do you teach the teachers? Well, a very recent example... A teacher called me up, many of them called me up about the same thing and said... They still call you on the telephone? <laughs> yeah, on the telephone. <laughs> well, I, when I say this, allegorically, they, they type at me. And, they, and she said, uh, I, have to teach, uh, I have to teach gravity and uh, uh, what sort of a question should I make? So uh, I, I did my, my thing. I said, uh, what do you think? <laughs> and she said, I, I was thinking of making a question like, what is gravity and what is so interesting about it? I said, look, that's about the worst possible question that you can make <laughs> for any child. So she, so she said, what would you do? I said, go into the class and ask them if they've ever opened a soda water bottle and ask them where the bubbles go. So they'll, they'll say they go upwards. Ask them if they've ever seen a bubble go sideways. They're all nine years old, okay? It'll get, it'll get them. And then you say, the question for today is, how come the bubbles in a soda water bottle never go sideways? And you'll get gravity. Andrew, aren't you, don't you find this infectious, this enthusiasm, this, this picture that Professor Mitra is, is painting? You mean from about the bubbles own, or the shoes? <laughs> every part of it, but from his own experience, you know, that, that tech is enabling children to learn more things in a different way, and it's not isolating their existence either. Look, I think what Professor, uh, we, what Professor Mitria is doing is amazing. I mean, we've, we've done lots of things together. We've, we've done debates all over the world. And I think by bringing the Internet to poor kids in, in India is amazing. I mean, no one's going to argue about that. No one's suggesting that poor children who have no access to schools shouldn't be able to access the Internet. And what, what he's doing is, is, is amazing. It's fantastic. Um, now, of course, some of those kids, God knows what they're doing in the hole in the wall. They're probably not just on Wikipedia. I'm sure they're doing some naughty things too, which is the nature of things. But I, again, we need to bring this conversation back to this whole question of enrichment. We're not talking about... I think the, the, the debate tonight is about advanced democracies like the US and the UK. We're talking about whether or not children who spend more and more of their time online, whose entire existences now seem to become addicted to the online experience of texting, of social networks, whether that's a good thing. Is that making their lives richer? That doesn't mean you ban technology in India. It doesn't mean people shouldn't be able to use technology to improve education. Uh, but there's a big difference. And I think, again, in terms of this conversation, unless we're able to... Um, unless we're able to refine the conversation in a serious way, and if it just degenerates into this brawl between people who 
love technology and hate technology, it's, it's, not a, it's not a useful conversation. I want to talk about the elephant in the room. Uh, you know, we're probably 15 minutes into the programme and we haven't tackled what must be the biggest fear for any parent overseeing their kids' use of technology, which is that they're going to see images that will disturb them. You know, the amount of pornography that is viewed by very young children is quite astonishing. Uh, most nine-year-olds will have seen something of a pornographic nature uh, that can't possibly have happened in pre-internet days. So, Professor Mitra, what would your uh, answer to that accusation that that darkens the experience, it darkens the world? Well, I, I was, I was uh, thinking about myself at age nine. I, I, I'd seen some really choice stuff, you know, and that was 1961. <laughs> so, so, so I don't think it's quite right to say that they're going to see something... Uh, well, maybe it's a little more easy now than uh, before. But it's exactly that, isn't it? It's the access to it, and, and it's the fact that, well, you know, uh, you can start clicking on things but, which uh, will go dark, I mean, way darker than your joyous nine-year-old experience actually, very quickly, and that will disturb a young person's mind. I actually quite agree with that bit. Uh, in fact, I wanted to say something, Andrew, uh, about the, the hole-in-the-wall stuff. One thing I noticed there, which is very interesting... If a screen is publicly visible, and if it's large, then there's much less chance that, that, that you'd have... You know, if you've got your uncle's announce and the local policeman walking behind you, then, then you're not likely to. Uh, unfortunately, the industry is taking us the, in the opposite direction, giving us smaller and smaller screens. And I agree there entirely. Locking a child up in his bedroom with an internet-enabled tiny little device is downright dangerous. You shouldn't do it. Mm. Martha, what are your thoughts on that very dark side of the internet? I, again, I, it's impossible to argue against, to my mind, the fact that there is more stuff available more easily than there ever has been before, and a lot of that is stuff that you might not want children to see. But I come from a position of thinking that if we build fear into how we treat these emerging technologies, you're going to build fear in a way that I think is going to be extremely unhelpful and potentially damaging to how we think about educating young people. And, you know, there are plenty of things you can do on simple locks and ways of parental control around this stuff. I think it's difficult and complicated, and there will be more things invented that make it easier for people to uh, have a um, sense of what their children are doing, for sure. It's, to me, not an either-or. It is a part of what we now face, and it is a more easily available part. It's something that we have to teach right from the beginning of how we approach technology. Um, Andrew, is this one of your darkest fears as well? You mean seeing pornography, me personally? <laughs> no. <laughs> Children having access to images that might affect their ability to form relationships, that might simply disturb uh, them. Let's bring it back again to the argument I'm making about enrichment. I mean, the, the unfolding of sexuality is obviously one of the central aspects of growing up. Now, you can't be taught that, and there's no ideal environment. But what we're saying, and, I, and here I have to disagree with, with, with Martha, I mean, obviously everyone's against extreme pornography. That's given. And you can indeed put locks on it and... And, and that's, there's no debate about that. No one would argue that that's a good thing. I mean, it's a consequence, unfortunately, of, especially in America, of an unrestricted internet. But there's another side to it, which I think we're seeing, which is particularly troubling. We're seeing it with lots of studies. There's a great book on this called 
pornified by a woman called Pamela Paul, a New York Times journalist. What we're seeing is the cultural elements of the internet coming to to really corrupt children's sexuality. You see it more and more with the, if you like, the sort of the online bullying, the way in which young girls in particular are almost bullied to, to put photographs, inappropriate photographs of themselves. Kids, particularly young boys, are growing up with this idea that sex is pornography. You hear more and more stories, more and more research is suggesting that you know, boys think that the world is a big porn movie and that girls actually do the kinds of things or boys and girls are supposed to do to behave in the, in the way in which they, they watch these things. Again, on the internet, I don't know what that word means. We're talking about media in general. I mean, they can watch this on, on television as well. They can watch it on cable channels. But what we're seeing with sexuality when it comes to this idea of enriching children's lives is that the impact of an extreme kind of personalization, of narcissism, of a cult of privacy, all those things are combining to destroy the... And again, I'm not sure if it's a natural, but certainly the slower evolution of children's sexuality. So you have... 10, 11-year-old girls on Facebook and on Instagram trying to become porn stars and behaving as if they are porn stars. We have the democratization of this kind of culture, which is particularly dangerous. Again, it comes back to this idea of time. What the Internet is doing is impacting on our notion of time. Things have speeded up so dramatically And, and of course, sexuality uh, as a subject is something that doesn't happen overnight. It's bound up in relationships. It should take time. And pornography is one of the best examples of this combination of narcissism and living in public. It's corrupting people's ability to develop real relationships, real romantic relationships, when they grow up. So you said that you felt we were kind of in the 1950s at the moment with regard to the internet. So do no, you think... get me on that one. Do you think <laughs> that by the time we get to the 1980s and the people, the very young people you're talking about in all of those examples are more mature themselves, that actually they might find more solutions to these problems and educate their children in a different way. Yeah, I mean, it's going to be one of, one of the things that will be really interesting is to see the marriage rates and the divorce rates. I mean, you see anecdotally, there's been a lot of... The, there was a book written um, about... Uh, people's sexual behavior in the Bay Area, the sort of the privileged net general uh, web entrepreneurs that are finding that people are less and less able to be attached to partners. So one of the really... This is so profound in terms of the way in which it changes our relationships. I have to interrupt you. Go on. Because I would say the absolute countercultural point. I have seen studies and endless data recently about how actually two things have happened. I take your point completely. Again, there's nothing to argue about the availability of pornography on the internet. But at the same time, think about what's happened sexually over the last 10, 15 years. There are now more 
there's now more capacity for people who are struggling with difficult questions of identity and sexuality to find each other and coalesce around groups. You know, you only have to go to pretty much any public bathroom in London now and you'll see people who can be catered for. You know, and it's not a laughing matter for many people. And people I talk to who are under 20 find it kind of surprising if you determine yourself as either male or female or one dimension sexually. And I would say that's a positive and empowering thing. And so it's a completely different cultural phenomenon to the one you're describing, which I, pushes you immediately yeah, into hard I, I would think, I, I agree with that. I think that's a, that's a fair point. I mean, again, the idea that uh, everything about the Internet is wrong, I think the ability to people to escape um, the sort of the, when it comes to sexual identity, the, the parochialism of, of small towns, of small communities, I think that's one, one really important benefit. But that still doesn't get... Well, what, what about the issue of... Uh, um, the way in which the internet over-sexualizes people, uh, young kids. Well, do you, do you know accept that that's yes, a problem? I would absolutely agree, but I don't have the data to know if that's a problem that's as big as, you know... But Martha, 10%. we can't well, be falling back on Sorry, the data guys. argument. You, you, I want no, to... but it's important because it does lead behaviours. You know, Daily Mail headlines are different to reality very often, yeah. and I think being reactionary and hysterical, you've got to root it in some understanding of changing behaviours. Uh, I want to I'm bring in our next expert witness, if that's all right, but just before I do, Professor Mitra, what makes you an optimistic person? Are you optimistic in every area of your life? Is that, you know, those the sunglasses that you put on in the morning, it's just, it's a good world, how can I make it better? No, I, I mean, I, <laughs> I, I never thought about it that way. I, 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 just think, uh, I just think that the way the world is, is probably uh, the best it can be under the circumstances. And I used to, uh, you know, my original subject was physics, and uh, one of the first things we learned there was that things uh, settle down into their best energy state, not their worst. Um, so, you know. So there's hope for the future yet. Uh, yeah, I, I don't think we can ever be bad, really. Oh, some people can. Uh, I want to bring in our next expert witness, who is Sue Palmer, a former primary head teacher in the Scottish Borders and an independent consultant on primary education. Uh, you think that the, the technology that you've seen many, many children use, Sue, is toxic for them, don't you? Uh, no. <laughs> I'm not... I, I certainly agree with Martha that it can enrich our lives. I mean, it's ridiculous to polarise it, as, as Andrew said. Um, what I'm concerned about is child development, and increasingly, the more I look into um, the effects of our culture, which is what I was writing about in Toxic Childhood, um, digital technology is only a little bit of that, the, the more I look into it, the, it's very young children that we are perhaps not giving the best possible experiences to at the moment. I think this is actually possibly largely an Anglo-Saxon, a British thing. Um, it's not so much the case on the, the mainland continent um, where they've had a long tradition of sort of kindergarten education and so on. So um, when people talk about children, they do tend to remember, I think Martha was remembering being about maybe eight or nine or so. I'm talking about children under seven. And what's happening during those early years from naught to seven is this development of their whole personality um, and particularly things like resilience. Now, the internet's not going to go away. The world's going to be like it is. And if there are difficult things in it, 
they need to be resilient in order to cope with that. And what we're seeing at the moment is more and more anxiety and stress among children. I mean, there was a recent survey that said that two-thirds of ten-year-olds are worrying all the time. And when I went round and asked ten-year-olds what they worried about, they said it was Donald Trump, actually, and Brexit, and whether or not they'd ever get a job. Um, so we, we do have children who are feeling very stressed. Now, I think that part of the reason for that is that we are amazing species that evolved to be adaptable and curious and self-regulating, And the way in which, in early childhood, those capacities can develop is through two things mainly. First of all, secure attachment, which we were talking about, feeling that you're loved and cared for. And that's to do with being interacting, engaging with human beings, loving human beings from when you're very young. And secondly, play, which is our basic inborn learning drive. And I was really interested that Andrew talked about the internet is fun, Actually, I started thinking, well, play's fun, but I, I, I think what the internet is is entertaining. And what it's doing is introducing children to a sort of passive entertainment from a very, very early age. Uh, the YouTube videos, many of them are watching at three and four, are, are, it's not cats, actually, so much. It's something called unboxing videos. I don't know whether anyone's actually ever watched one. But, um, so, you know, some mother has packaged some consumer item or items, and the child unwraps it. These are getting 40 million hits. Children are watching them over and over and over again. And they're very much adored by uh, marketing departments because, of course, it's turning them into little consumers. This is what... Um, screen-based technology can do. It becomes the medium through which the marketers can get to the kids. So it does worry me intensely that um, tablets and so on would be, and TV. Um, I used to be education um, consultant to the BBC for, for a while in the 90s and so on. We didn't broadcast things to children under three. But now telly is available from babies onwards. So you're getting a screen-based culture which is being displacing what children have done in every time and every culture, little children, until our own, which is play, usually outdoors, socially, uh, not too much adult supervision, it's coming from themselves, and not requiring a great deal of equipment. And um, I think that was what Sugata's experiment was all about, wasn't it? You, you, they were outdoors, they were social, they were playing with something they'd found in a hole in the wall. Um, so if humans are adaptable, though, and we all accept that, and we don't want this to be a polarised argument that says mm-hmm. either or, uh, what do you think the, that future generations will have totally lost through being immersed in technology at a very young age and isn't it possible that evolution will just bring something else to the table what they in as much as they've lost something they will have gained something else um i think certainly we'll gain enormous amount through the use of technology as we did with the earlier technologies of reading and writing as time went on um but it seems to me really important that this early Um, interaction, the development of social communication skills, empathy, which takes an enormous amount of sort of um, genuine engagement and practice, first with the adults who care for you and then with other children. The capacity to self-regulate, control your behaviour and emotions and therefore not be controlled by the materials that are being thrown at you and sold at you. 
um, and the capacity for resilience, which depends on those two former things. Now, if we don't get those embedded in our children at an, at an early age, because the children are being distracted by entertainment, are being, and because adults are distracted too. I mean, I was <laughs> on the phone again today about um, whether parents should be looking at their phones when their children come out of school, and you say, well, of course not, because the kids want to talk to them when they come out of school. It seems to me daft that we, we can't see this, but I do think that, that in the UK we have a particular problem with with the idea of early development. We just don't really know much about little children. It's, um, it's a sort of British thing. And this is a key point, isn't it, that our, that can exacerbate our anxiety because mm-hmm. we haven't all grown up with a childhood where we've experienced this level of technology. Yeah. Our fears can be amplified. We simply don't yeah. have that background that we can compare and say, well, actually, you know, the woman, over, you know, she's absolutely all right. I knew her when she was a kid. She was on her tablet all of the time. We haven't got that kind of knowledge yet, have we? Well, we haven't really got an enormous amount of knowledge about looking after small children anymore. I mean, it, it actually, sadly, used to be women's work, therefore it was completely unsung and unvalued, and therefore we don't really take it as terribly seriously as perhaps we should. Um, on, on the continent, there is a, a, a long-standing a long tradition of kindergarten, and that means that there is a more understanding about the value of play and the importance of social and emotional and physical development in early years. And children's embodied learning, as opposed to simply trying to accelerate the cognitive, which is basically what uh, the, you know, uh, using digital technology is doing. We don't need to accelerate the cognitive development. We'll get there anyway, but if it's not bound, it's not based in a sort of social and emotional balance and physical embodied learning and engagement with the real world, then it's, not gonna be, it's all going to be built on a bit of rather sand. Martha, this sounds like we're going to go to Helena Hancock. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, that's not what I've heard, and I hope it's not a misrepresentation of what you said, but I think what I've found interesting, which you've just made me think about, is the, the physical embodying of play. And obviously, you know, of course, when you say, I think of course you need to learn how to physically be as how to cognitively mm. be. Um, I think it's interesting to think about, you know, I read some stuff about hand-eye coordination when you're playing games on the device, but I would it's never... a very small bit of, of course, coordination. And, I, and I, that's exactly what I'm saying. Of course, I wouldn't, you know, for one minute, as someone who can't run anymore, running around is an extraordinary joy and a pleasure and something we should encourage children to do. And you know, I feel as strongly about having technology in a classroom as I do about having green parks and spaces for every child to be out and about in. So... You know, again, it's not an either-or, but you've made me really think but about that. But at the moment, we have, according to um, international surveys, the children, our children, are among the least active in the yes, world. Yes, that's arguably a and whole uh, bunch of factors. Yeah, we, have, we have. I completely. I, I know the data. I completely agree with you, but I would. I would caution putting that all into technology. You know, no, that's I, I, I'm, because of watching too much television or too much uh, no green spaces to play in, no gardens, no parents taking activity, you know, all those things. It is, it's, uh, uh, absolutely, and that was what I, that's what I write about. But it, 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 the, the problem has been that as the, the cities became more and more built up, as the traffic clogged the streets more and more, as we became more anxious, possibly because of our exposure to all the evil in the world through screens, the screen-based entertainment has expanded to fill the given space, and that's absolutely terrific for the marketers because they can get at the kids little. And what they're trying to convince us all, parents and children, is that those two things, those two essential ingredients I talked about, love and play, 
can both be substituted by stuff. Mm. One of the problems with having this kind of discussion is we're using the term children, and of course a childhood mm. can be from naught up to 18, and there are very different categories, very different needs, and very different arguments to be had about every stage of childhood. Is it interesting to note that in 2010, Steve Jobs told a New York Times journalist that his kids were not allowed to use yeah. mm-hmm. screens? Yeah. Uh, is that a... a is there an age at which you think, well, we could have a totally different argument about the enrichment of a child's life? So I suspect that you're saying that there is a kind of starting point, perhaps not for the under fives, I'd, not for I'd, the under I mean, the, the American Academy of Pediatrics recommendations is, is, is none, or is at least as little as possible. It's so ubiquitous now, it's almost impossible to stop it, but n- none until two. Around about an hour a day... Uh, maximum till five, and then no more than two hours a day after that. And I, I, I think it's getting harder and harder the older they get to keep them away from yeah. it. And do any of you have personal experiences that you would be happy to talk about in terms of your own kids? What, what you let them do, what you have let them done, and you know, have, they, have they turned out okay? I think it's, it's important to, to, to not just speculate on this. I mean, you're, you, I couldn't agree more. We're talking about an education system where kids are learning how essentially to become human. Um, that's what that the, the early education is about, and it's failing at the moment. You brought up Steve Jobs. There is actually an alternative educational ecosystem, I use that word, it's a Silicon Valley word, uh, evolving in, in, um, in, in the tech business. I mean, Jobs brought it up. More and more tech people understand how counterproductive um, screens are. And what you're seeing in California, Northern California, is an increasing popularity of Waldorf education. Mm. And what the Waldorf education, which is based on the philosophies of a, a late 19th century, early 20th century a German a Viennese educationist called Rudolf Steiner, what it's about, or the way it's evolving in America, is, again, from an early age, uh, screens are banned in schools, and the, the, the most popular of all these Waldorf schools is actually in Palo Alto. Most of the, or many of the senior people at Google and Facebook are sending their kids to it because they are the ones who understand how dangerous this stuff is, about how addictive it is, how, about how so much of the software is designed to be addictive. So from about the age of six or seven in early Waldorf education to about 12, parents agree to sign uh, a deal with the school where, where screens are actively discouraged and not allowed in school. And then after about 13 or 14, screens are reintegrated into people's lives. So this isn't just speculative. This is real. We're seeing alternative, parallel kinds of education systems evolving within this new digital world. I, I have two kids, both of which went through Waldorf. One really liked it. One l- liked it less. It's not, again, a cure-all. It's not a, a silver bullet. But the key thing, I think, in terms of, of, of fixing some of these problems is redesigning the nature of education. And there are some people who say, well, the way to educate now is to teach coding in school, to give kids more and more access to technology at a younger and younger age. And the great challenge in our digital world is not learning coding. 
The great challenge in a, in a world increasingly dominated by artificial intelligence is teaching children or enabling, you, you can't actually teach children to do this, but enabling children to think differently from computers. Mm. Those are the to... people who will survive in this new world, and that's why we need an alternative kind of education system too. I want to bring in our final uh, witness this evening. Julia Hardy is a television and radio presenter specialising in technology and video games. And as you put it on your website, Julia, pretty much anything to do with the online self, online self. And also, you're a young person. And I wonder Ish. how much of all of this conversation you've listened to and thought, oh, it's old people talking about tech. They, they just aren't. No, please answer it. Please answer it. Uh, is there a lot of stuff that we've been discussing where you've just thought, oh, it's just noise. The list. You don't get it. You okay, got? share with us some of your list. <laughs> be all right. Um, I think, uh, again, everything's always about balance. I think, you know, coming home and watching television for seven hours a day is never really the best thing. I think it's always to do with uh, lit and lofton. I mean, you were talking about, you know, these Silicon Valley guys uh, sending their kids to this, uh, you know, school that doesn't have screens. And I would sort of conject that maybe it's not necessarily because they realise that it's really bad and really terrible. It's probably just that they've been around it at home. So it's about balance and I think that is the essence of good parenting there are obviously good uh, and terrible things that can happen with technology just like there is in life really and it's all about just finding balance you know finding the ways to enrich but also you know getting I mean my mum used to you know restrict tv and kick me out the house and tell me to go and play in a park and you know I appreciate that you know we're living in a different sort of world now where Parents are stretched really thinly. Parents are stressed. Kids are going to pick up on that. And, you know, I see situations sometimes in gaming where it's, you know, you've got some very burnt out parents and it's easier to buy their child a video game because they get a bit of peace and quiet and they can get on with what they need to do and they know that that child is going to be entertained. And that's not really a solution. But then you have to take it back to why are these parents so stressed out that they you know, can't engage with their children in, in the way that they want to, that they need time almost apart. But tell us about a life uh, where you have been enriched by the amount of time that you spend on screens. Because actually, if you told everybody that, you know, you spend five, six hours, yeah. uh, you know, a day uh, sitting in front of a screen playing games, I think a lot of people, a lot of parents would think, oh, my God, that can't possibly happen to my child. You know, bad things will happen. But actually, yeah. you are eloquent. You've made a career out of it. You seem to be pretty well balanced. So go figure. Yeah. Well, I mean, here's the thing. Um, I, how I choose to spend my free time is I would rather play a video game than just sit around passively. Don't get me wrong. Certain days out of the week, maybe I just want to watch a, a movie or something on Netflix. But if I play a video game in the evening, I feel like I've accomplished something. I've solved a problem. And, you know, for all of those parents who are out there thinking like, oh, no, I don't want my child to be sat in front of a screen. Have you ever been in any office anywhere? your kid is going to be probably sat in front of a screen, you know, regardless whether they play games or not anyway. Like, a, you know, I'm either playing games or I'm writing in front of a screen. There is, that is unfortunately the state of how business and how the world kind of works these days. But if you can instill this sort of balance uh, early on about sort of taking breaks, you know, not necessarily 
getting completely consumed with everything that's online. And don't get me wrong, people do get consumed with things like Instagram and these weird selfies and girls with lip fillers. And have and you had a lot of uh, <laughs> that, the kind of flack uh, that uh, young women do get online? Have you been trolled <laughs> a lot? Do, has it made you worry more about how you look and does it affect your well-being? No, I just decided that everyone was an idiot. Um, so being a woman with an opinion basically means that you will get an awful lot of flack online. Um, uh, the first time I did a TV show about gaming, the first reaction was obviously, uh, you're a woman, blonde, well, at the time blonde. Um, what could you possibly know about games? And online, I did the stupid thing of Googling myself. Because I was like, let's get some constructive feedback about that first show. Don't do that. I don't recommend it at all. Um, you know, it's not terribly constructive, let's be honest, but every time I started a new job or I did a new TV show or something like that, I always had to almost like, wait for the abuse to die down until people realised that I knew what I was talking about. And there were gentlemen who uh, worked on this particular channel with me who knew probably less than nothing about games, but, you know, these things weren't questioned. Now... This is quite a negative thing. This was sort of a little while ago, and I've sort of learned how to deal with these trolls. I do a blog called Misogyny Monday where I just kind of take the mick a little bit about it. You know, I had to find a way to deal with it. But what is fantastic about the Internet is that I felt it was a responsibility as a woman to not take these things lying down because I feel like that doesn't progress things any further from any other women if you decide to have a public, you know, uh, you know life online. But the more I spoke up the more I realized that my female peers spoke up, the more I realized that now other women can connect together to stand together, to know that they're not alone. And this, this, this goes back to you know, yeah. sexuality in, in gaming as well. You know, there are a lot of people out there who do feel isolated, like they can't stand up for themselves and be the person they really want to be because they're intimidated. So, Sue, this is incredible resilience that mm -hmm. we're seeing in Absolutely. human form uh, <laughs> that, that has accompanied a life spent uh, using technology so well I'm mum made to go and play in the park as well I mean <laughs> no, I mean the, the, the problem to me isn't that you know the thing that we're missing is getting kids outdoors and getting kids playing as they have throughout history that seems to me the, th the issue that we should be solving rather than worrying too much about what's going on with the, the, the digital technology because that's there and if it displaces what human beings require in evolutionary terms in their early life in order to, to grow up resilient, self-regulating, socially competent and able to empathise with their peers, then if, if it displaces that too early and therefore becomes default activity because you just want to be entertained all the time, then we're in trouble. I'm not suggesting that that's necessarily going to happen, but I do think we need to get our act together on it mm. and find ways of substituting for what used to come reasonably naturally. Professor Mitra. Well, I, I just wanted to, uh, to bring in a word of caution here because uh, I think there's a... You know, when we say uh, that children should go out there and play uh, or they should behave in a particular way, uh, whether they should photograph themselves or they shouldn't. Um, I hear in that an unspoken comment which says, they should be like me. Uh, there's something inherently wrong with that assumption. And uh, there are two people I can quote on that. One is an old quote from an Indian poet, 
Tagore, who said, do not educate your children the way you were educated, because he was born in another time. The second is from Elon Musk, who said, many, many years later, who said, if you had a choice between two education systems, one that allows your child to live in the future, and the other that allows you to comfortably live in the past, which would you choose? Oh. Just a caution there. Thank you. Good cautions. Yeah. Can I chuck a quote in as well from Mark Zuckerberg when he was challenged about uh, the potential dangers on Facebook and all social media, actually, in terms of the narcissism that it can create? He said, you actually only have one identity. And surely on social media, when you're very young, you don't just have one identity. You can create lots of different identities. You don't yet know what your one identity is. And the danger is that you put out there what you'd like to become with no mechanism, an actual way of being that person in real life. Julia? I think, um, you know, there's wonderful things... um, like we were talking about before in terms of finding out who you are as a person and actually video games do provide some fantastic opportunities to sort of figure out who you are. Um, I have a friend of mine who worked out that he was gay because of playing The Sims because he played as a male character and then got quite excited when this other male character was sort of kissing this other, you know, there's, you know, it's a way of kind of almost safely kind of figuring out who you are. And I think we all have different identities. We're all different people at different times. You know, you, you, know, you could be the head of a major corporation, but you'd still be the baby of the family when you go home and your brothers are going to give you hassle. And, and we talk about you know, this sort of fear of things that can happen online, you know. But I think um, these kind of things happen in real life. And I think, you know, we're talking about, like, not going outside or parents not letting their kids go outside and sort of play. But I think some of that is not necessarily to do with technology. I think there's this sort of whip-up and frenzy of, you know, leaving your child alone for longer than five minutes and you somehow have to always be watching them all the time because terrible, terrible things are going to happen. And I think, you know, that's true in real life and online. There's this sort of sense of... Yeah around your children all the time and, and that's, it sort of seems why they're not sort of letting them just go out and run in some field somewhere, you know, they, they don't trust the fields for some reason. I, I think, yeah, I think that um, one, I, I couldn't agree more I think one of the differences is that the internet is, a, is an extreme sort of surveillance system and the difference between growing up in a pre-internet age and the pre-digital age and an analogue age is you could escape your parents. And there is this sort of parental paranoia now in, in much of our culture. Um, and having these devices means that these kids are tethered to their parents. The internet hasn't... One of the things we need to teach the internet to do is learn how to forget. Because, again, I think you're right. Children change. And if you're tethered to these photos or issues that it hasn't learned how to forget, then, again, it, it, it comes back to this question of, is the Internet enriching children to develop into adults? And one of the things about that development is changing oneself, is reinventing oneself. And if the Internet hasn't learned how to forget, then you can't do that. But thirdly, and this is a really important thing, you, people keep on bringing up trolling. One of the most important things about learning to become an adult is being accountable for what you do and say. So if you scream at someone at the street, if you see a, a woman and you start making you know, sexist comments or, or racist comments, 
then you're accountable in the analog world. One of the problems, again, with the way, again, it's not a problem necessarily intrinsically of technology, but one of the problems with the way in which the internet has evolved is it's enabled anonymity. It's enabled and indeed a sort of fostered trolling where people can sit around all day anonymously and um, make, you know, bully, bully women. I mean, it's one of the most appalling things of the internet. Or make racist remarks or trash other people. And the way in which childhood is enriched is teaching children that they're accountable for their behavior. And if you enable anonymity online, then again, you're, you're, you're infantilizing our culture. And what it's resulting in are people growing up into children. They're not learning how to take responsibilities as adults. They're not learning what it means to be accountable. Martha, I want to come to you first to see whether or not you've heard anything this evening that has swayed your position as an optimist in our proposition that digital technology is making our children's lives richer? Well, I think we've focused very heavily on just the internet as well as you know, the broader question of digital technologies. You know, I go back to the internet is not inherently anything. I mean, it obviously now is become more like a kind of being, of course. But I believe two things. To pick up Polly on what Andrew said, you know, I'm an optimist because I think the future is not written yet. And while there is a huge amount to be hopeful with and a huge amount of exciting, enticing, inspiring things for children, for people of all ages on the internet, we can make it the force that we want it to be. We can make it the force we want it to be as parents. We can make decisions as consumers, as governments, and we just need to be able to be more active in that conversation. And that is where I think I probably would agree with everyone here, is that I think we haven't got it quite right yet. I started with Socrates because there are these seismic moments in history, and we're in one of them now. We've gone through that heady sort of, and I was part of it, woohoo, it's here! And now we're in the like, oh my God, now what do we do? And part of that is the very profound impact, both good and bad on children. So I'm optimistic because I think the pluses still far outweigh the negatives if we make those active steps. I would be absolutely in favour of letting someone age 18 press the scrub button. Gone. Why not? Why can't you have a completely free time and play and explore and do all those things? So I think there are devices and tricks that we could use, so that's why I'm an optimist. And Andrew, what about you? Is there anything that has shaken you <coughs> to the very core this evening that you will trip away from the LSE thinking, woohoo, I'm cheerier, yeah. Um, I, think, you know, I think Martha made a really good point on the, 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 the thing about uh, children's sexuality. I think... Um, it, it shows the way in which you know, the internet was developed as an edge technology. It was developed as a way to empower people who weren't at the center. It was developed as a way to break down hierarchies. And when it acts in that way, as, as, as I think when it comes to children, the sort of uh, children discovering that quote-unquote normal isn't actually normal, and that they can find people like themselves outside their small towns or villages or communities. I think that's a good thing. I mean, I think Martha and I are in... I think this is, again, so often in these kind of debates, this is a semantic discussion. I mean, the, the distinction is a semantic one. I mean, I think we all agree 
Can I just argue against that, actually? I think... Um, You're not in the debate. No, I'm, I'm chairing the debate, then. Oh. I'm here. I came. OK, go on. But I think it is important. What we're trying to do with the question is make people think, do I just look at a child on a laptop and immediately think bad things are going to happen? No, or can I parent the same child on the same laptop with an, a more optimistic spirit where I think, no, there are great things that could happen in the next 10 minutes online. And so what we're trying to question in, in giving the debate this title is just how we look at exactly the same facts, but we come at it from a completely different angle. And if we do always come at it from a completely different angle, maybe we miss something. No, maybe I, there's something that, that we can develop ourselves. What I meant by a semantic discussion is that I think, certainly in terms of what Martha seemed to have said, we would agree on a lot of the problems. Now, Martha said she's an optimist in that she thinks those things can be worked out. Now, there are two ways in which we can fix a lot of these problems, or there's more than two ways, but there are two fundamental ways. The, the first, which is the Silicon Valley way, is to just assume that if we just stay clear of this stuff, that the market will eventually work itself out. So the Silicon Valley idealists will say, sure, there are lots of problems. No one, would, no one would argue that there aren't problems. But we're still in the early stages of this thing, and it will work itself out. But we've heard that argument for 25 years, 40 years, actually. And things are only getting worse. That's what makes me a pessimist in the sense that I don't think the market will work itself out. What we need is external forces. What we need are grown-ups getting involved in this system and saying, look, this aspect of it isn't working. So Martha said, I'm in favor of a button which will allow you to delete your history. Well, actually, the EU is working on that. The EU has something which it's developing, which will come into law in 2018, the law of the right to be forgotten online. And that's an example, and again, I don't know whether that makes me a pessimist or an optimist, but it's an example of the way in which some of these core problems of digital technology, when left to the market, don't work. So you need external agencies, you need grown-ups, you need politicians, legislators, parents to become involved. Because if you just leave it to the children and just say, we'll just go online and in the end everything will be fine, then we'll all become pessimists. Mm. <coughs> Oh, excuse me. <coughs> Sorry, I inhaled at exactly the wrong time. Here we go. So that's what all of our panel think tonight. We need to know what the audience here in the theatre... <coughs> it's all right, I'm OK. We need to know what the audience here in the theatre at the London School of Economics and Political Science thinks. So at the start of the evening, it was pretty evenly balanced. Our shouts were full and empty, so we're going to do it again. If you think that digital technology is making our children's lives richer, would you like to shout full? Full. And if you think it's not empty? Empty. Oh, what do you reckon? Slightly more full or exactly the I same? Think slightly more full. I think slightly optimistic. more full as well. So the optimists have carried the day here at the LSE tonight. I don't know what you've been thinking at home, but if you would like to get in touch with us, please do. I'd like to thank all of the optimists and <clears throat> I'd like to thank all of the optimists and pessimists who've been battling it out around the table. You may now turn your telephones back on. And that's it for this series of Glass Half Full. We hope that we have at least made you think about how you think about the important issues of the day. Do you always look through a prism of doom or are you wearing the sunnies of optimism? We hope to be back again 
I'm an optimist. From all of us here at the London School of Economics, thank you very much for listening and goodbye. We have time for some questions. If anyone wants questions, guy in the blue shirt, you can take your... Actually, you probably need to keep your microphones on. I'm sorry. Yes, take it away. Um, my question is Professor uh, Sagata Mitra. I have two questions. Uh, number one is, is learning technology for children the same as learning mother language? As you said, that they don't need to learn it. And the second question is regarding using technology. And you said that they're using technology in many different ways. Isn't it because of the freedom that technology provides for children rather than technology itself? If we give them a piece of paper and we ask good question and give them freedom, is it the same? Yeah, well, to take your first question about whether they need to learn technology, but technology is a really big word. So I was talking specifically about digital technologies. So um, uh, if, you, if you give a group of children a helicopter and go away, then they'll probably kill themselves. <laughs> but but, but, if, but if, you give them, if, you give them, if you give them a tablet and go away, then they usually end up uh, learning a lot about the tablet. <laughs> learning in, in their own way. It's not as though they, they, they learn about uh, how, how the tablet works. Uh, but they know how to do things with it. Uh, that doesn't need to be taught. Uh, you uh, rightly mentioned it's like learning your mother tongue. I mean, you, you just learn it. The second bit about, uh, you know, whether they, they, they're learning with technology simply because the technology is around. Uh, my work seems to show that it uh, isn't that. It doesn't quite work that way. There's a difference. If you, if you give uh, a group of children a book and leave them alone with it, nothing much happens. Okay? Mainly because you can't read a book together. Okay? But you can read a screen together. So what I've found is that if you, if you have a big screen, and I keep saying this over and over again, it has to be a big publicly visible screen, and if there's something interesting to find out, then groups of children can go way above their individual levels. That I've seen enough times to be able to say that that happens around the world. It doesn't matter who the children are, what language they speak in, what kind of culture they come from. But having said that, that's not what happens in school and that's not what happens in home. So it should happen that way. We need to figure out a way. So like Andrew said, we can't just say it's going to happen by itself. Somebody's got to say that's the way to do it. And then maybe we'll get the positive effects. Thank you. Uh, yes, gentleman next door. Um, don't you think this debate is really about parents? They fear that they are losing control over the children. And interestingly, all we talked about is how children are using the di digital technology. I wanted to draw the attention to the exact opposite, how parents are using the digital technology to survey for surveillance of their kids, you know, it, to control them, to make sure that they're not losing the control. So in the end of the day, maybe the fear has got to do with control, not the technology. Who would you like to answer that? All of us? Anyone. Anyone. <laughs> well, I, I, already I already said that, I mean, I agree with you. I think that you can't, bl I mean, blame the internet for lots of things, but you certainly can't blame the internet for the paranoia of parents these days and the sort of the, the phenomenon of helicopter parents. 
And I, I think one of the striking cultural things about today's generation versus previous generations is how there's a lack of rebellion on the part of kids. Kids tend to have much more conformism today, and they, they share, the, there's, there's much less of a kind of rebellious youth culture. So I think it's a really important issue. When, when you can't escape your parents, when you have these devices, you carry them everywhere, you literally means that they know where you are all the time. So I think you're absolutely right. And could I add that I think it's really contributing to the lack of resilience, that, that children feel that they're being spied on. That's not the same as being loved. <laughs> <laughs> and and um, nobody wants to be controlled all the time. It's um, extremely unpleasant. Mm. A couple of questions down here, I think. Lady right at the front. Thank you. Where does the family dog come into this? Mm. Where does the time spent with the dog, the time spent sitting in the grass in the backyard watching a real bug, not a bug online, but a real bug, and just... Being. Yeah. Well, uh, can I? Uh, yes, of course you can. Um, uh, uh, that bothered, uh, used to bother me a lot. It doesn't bother me now. Uh, what you can do is you can, you can actually enrich that experience of watching a bug that you've never seen before, not by looking at it on the internet. You watch the bug for a while, and then you ask the child, why do you think it's doing what it's doing? and give them, them, not him or her, but them, give them the internet. Could, could I just say, sometimes you just want to watch the bug without someone trying to damn well teach you something? I, I mean, it's that whole business of children just having the opportunity just to be, and particularly to be in the real world, which is actually extremely dynamically interesting, but we're sort of thinking we've got to sort of get it secondhand. Um, via somebody else's film. Julia? I don't know. I mean, I think one of the, I think the best things about the digital age is the chance to kind of opt in, learn. I mean, I remember, like, wanting to know the answer to questions growing up, and I'd ask my dad, and he'd probably say something a bit stupid, and then I'd ask my mum, and then he'd ask your friends or people that you knew, and you always got a very, very skewed perspective, very, like, very small perspective about life or learning things. Or a lot of the time it was always wrong, and then you went around saying the wrong thing for like the next ten years until someone <laughs> corrected you with the right answer. And now it's this wonderful thing where... You know, maybe someone is sitting outside, you know, playing with the dog, you know, looking at a ladybird, and suddenly thinks, like, well, yeah, why, why are they doing that? And you can actually find out the information that you want at the time you're interested. Because actually, you know what? Three hours later, the kid might be completely interested in something else, is looking somewhere else and is engaged in a different way. But you can kind of... It's something we learn a lot of the time from um, video games, is this kind of idea of kind of opting in to be more involved and... Um, there's a wonderful book called Reality is Broken that looks about how you can sort of take game designs and systems and apply them to real life uh, and, and how it can sort of better enrich life. Um, there's, a, there's a game called um, Skyrim. It's an older game. I don't know if any of you guys know it. Um, it's a role-play game. Uh, you sort of play in this kind of medieval time and there's lots of wonderful things you can go and do. A lot of it fairly pointless. Um, but people spend a very, very long time playing this game. I mean, hundreds of hours, should, should they choose to. But, I mean, if you actually just wanted to complete the game, 
The game itself, you could probably do maybe 15, 15 hours or so. But people spend hundreds and hundreds of hours in this game. Now, if you slightly change the framework of this game and you said to complete this game, you had to spend 100 hours doing 100 different tasks and fetch quests and go and get this guy's hat or something, it would be the worst game in the world. You'd hate it because 100 hours of being forced to do something is actually quite tedious. Um, but because... It's this open world that you go into, and you actually you know that this is the main story you have to follow, but actually there's someone over here, and you learn a bit more about this thing, and there's another storyline. It's, it's this idea of choosing to learn and, and choosing to engage in this particular world, which can be applied to real life in the same way. And I think, obviously, having all this technology really does make it possible to do that in a really exciting and interesting way. Sorry, that was a lot of work. No, thank you. Can I butt in again? You know, because kids have been playing pretend games since the beginning of time and doing it in their own imagination in a self-directed way without needing some sort of fabricated thing to do it through. I'm not saying that we should all be going out there and pretending, but very small children, probably it's a good idea for them to be using their own imagination creating for themselves. So this is an older game. So it's all to do with age and, yeah, fine when they're older, but we really do need to give the opportunity to play to work. But isn't the fantastic thing that now, at the age of 48, I would like nothing more than to go and sit outside and watch a bug for a couple of hours. So maybe it just all comes full circle. Uh, Any other questions? Yes, gentlemen there. Uh, Do you know what? We've got to this stage in our... Uh, politically correct, don't offend anyone thing, where I couldn't even say the man with the glasses. I stopped myself just in case. I can't say the man with the glasses. You were on Radio London many years ago. Um, I got a question about uh, the internet and diversity and understanding of diversity. I mean, I think Michael touched on it a couple of times, talking about breaking down barriers. Certainly the first internet generation coming through appears to be more understanding of different races, cultures, sexuality... Do you think the internet plays a part in that? Or maybe you don't agree with the supposition I put Martha. I think it's a really good and interesting question, and I don't know the answer. Because on the one hand, I feel as a woman that's worked in technology my whole working life, as Fee's pointed out already, an incredibly long period of time, um, that one of the things I find most disappointing, dispiriting, and depressing, yes, even for an optimist, is how it is a world that is so dominated by old-fashioned hierarchies. And for me, they're mainly about gender, but you could probably apply it to lots of different uh, aspects of diversity, I guess. And that, to me, is looking just very simply at who creates this stuff we're all consuming. And I go back to the fact that 4 or 5% of the world's software engineers are women. 4 or 5%, right? This is a scale problem of such magnitude. And if you look at the importance of the sector overall, you know, from any angle and metric. So on that level, it would be really hard to feel positive. But then you look at other aspects, you know, p- people finding groups who are similar to them. You know, I just went on the Women's March in Washington against Trump. And I would not probably have done that if I hadn't found all the people that I wanted to connect with using social media. So, you know, it's a stupid personal example, but there are much more deep and inspiring ones than that. But it's... Professor, you want to answer? I I actually do have uh, a personal experience with this for a number of years. And uh, there are a couple of things uh, that are very interesting about it. Uh, Well, firstly, if you take children in really remote places and connect them with the Internet, with people in other places, they change. And I've seen that happen many, many times in different countries, in Africa, Cambodia, India. Uh, What changes? Well, their understanding of the fact that 
there are people outside their countries, first of all, and that those people are in some ways different and in some ways uh, the same. Uh, what's also interesting is that the people on the other side, the people who are talking to them, I have a thing called the granny cloud. It consists of uh, <laughs> retired uh, school Digital teachers, <laughs> the retire, mostly retired people who uh, Skype in and talk to children. Not, they don't teach them, they, they just have a conversation. And they're from also countries everywhere. And the children, uh, of course, learn a, a lot from them, uh, pick up a whole, whole lot of things, including a Birmingham accent and things like that. <laughs> but, but what I didn't expect was how much the children would change the grannies. Okay? They now know a lot more about what is similar and what's different between their culture and, and the other side. So it is extremely healthy as far as I can tell, provided it is safe and public. Mm. Do you know what? That is a lovely note to end on. Shall we end it there? Thank you all very much indeed. For